Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we're going to welcome Dr. Stephen Loftus back to the show to help us preview the high school and college baseball seasons. We'll do that, of course, with a focus on the 2022 draft and have some very early, very preliminary discussion on this year's draft class. And after that, we'll get into a little bit about the prospect of a draft lottery in Major League Baseball, perhaps being part of the next collective bargaining agreement. Before we get into tonight's episode, though, we uh, want to start out by shouting out uh, some of our new patrons who have joined our Patreon community, and I'll turn that over to Bob. Yeah, new member this week, Scott McKnight, signed up middle of last week. We haven't recorded a podcast in a while since at least the Fangraphs reaction that we did on Patreon and then later released to the public. Uh, Scott McKnight, welcome aboard. Thanks for joining. Well, thank you for joining our community, Scott. And now I'll uh, introduce tonight's guest. He is a resident draft expert at Baltimore Sports and Life. In addition to reading his work at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, you can also hear him as a co-host on the warehouse on B or a co-host on the warehouse on BSL Radio, along with Matt Corey and Chris Stoner. He is Stephen Loftus. Stephen, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well this evening. It's with the CBA and all that. It's gonna be nice to actually discuss baseball that's gonna be played this weekend. So, um, gonna be a lot of fun there. Yeah, it's nice to not have to like throw seven hypotheticals into a statement about baseball that is going to be played. Uh, I'll just start with this. We're obviously really far out, you know, probably five months or so away from the draft. But what are your early thoughts on this year's class? Last year, it seemed like by the time the draft actually came together, there was this elite core, you know, a couple of couple of prospects, the Vanderbilt arms, even if Rocker fell, all that sort of thing. This year, there doesn't seem to be that necessarily standout player every single player comes with questions and i mean that seems to be the case every year but this year particularly so i mean we're going to talk about termar johnson you're going to talk about drew jones and drew jones he needs to add a little bit of weight to his body um ideally to tap into his power he needs to connect to his leg you know we'll get more to that but he comes with definite questions even though the upside there of a you know possible double plus center fielder with uh plus plus speed and 20 home run power i mean Maybe not his dad's power, but I mean, that type of uh, prospect is really intriguing, even if there's questions if he's going to get there. Usually draft boards lean college heavy early on for obvious reasons, but then the high school guys, their seasons start and they start to make their presence known later in this cycle. But this year, two of your top three on your article that you just have up on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com are high school players. Three out of the top five on Baseball America's rankings are high school players as well. Is this just a weak year for top-end college talent, or is this a really strong crop of high school kids that we're looking at? 
A little column A, a little column B. I mean, Termar Johnson has possibly a special bat. Like, it's rarely that sort of bat control, that sort of ability, that sort of hit tool out of a high school player. But he's got that sort of, you know, potentially. I mean, some people see a double plus hit tool. I tend to see it closer in the 60, 65 range just because I like to hedge that bet on a high schooler. And again, Drew Jones even if he doesn't have necessarily the hitting ability that Termar Johnson has, he's he's the type of guy that can honestly make a difference as a center fielder, the type of guy that can go out and add a whole win just based on his defense alone. And I don't think it's necessarily a down year for college, but the challenge is this is that um, it's everything's still affected by COVID. And so these guys maybe have a year or two, I say they don't have two full years of data on them yet. You know, normally at this point, if we're looking at juniors, you got guys, you've seen them for a couple of years, a couple full years on the Cape or in the Northwoods league. And you have a decent idea what the player is going into that year. There's still a lot of questions on those types of guys. And even more importantly for the college class, a couple of the top talent guys in Brooks Lee and Chase DeLauder, they're small conference guys and small conference guys, whether it's warranted or not, are always going to have that question of the quality of competition and all that. Now, Lee and DeLauder have backed it up, but just, again, there's so many questions about the uh, track record and the small conferences that it kind of weighs down that college class a little bit. Now, if they continue putting up numbers, especially in the shall we say non-public numbers if Brooks Lee puts up impressive exit velocities the lauder exit velocities that sort of stuff then it's going to be hard to argue against them especially for teams that don't like the um don't like to bet on the upside shall we say of high school players don't like to take that risk reward they see too much risk in high schoolers I mean Brooks Lee Jace Young and um and uh Chase DeLauder are going to be really attractive options and uh, I mean <laughs> Let's let's face it. Given the Orioles' history, th- those are the three guys that you're going to be looking at, really. Just how big of a difference maker will Shed Long be for the Orioles? No, um, <laughs> talking talking about a another potential second baseman. If Tamar Johnson really has 70 hit 70 power or 80 hit 60 power, as we've heard in some places potentially, how could you possibly pass on him at one one, even if he has to move to second base? Um, he's projected as a, a plus glove there. So what are your thoughts on the overwhelming <laughs> uh, love we have for Tamar Johnson on here? The the overwhelming possibility, and it, it definitely is there. I mean, 80 hit feels a little strong. Now, as I said, I'm a little bit lower in the hit tool just because it's so unprecedented for a high schooler to have that type of control. But still, even if he's a 70 hit, 60, 65 power guy, that's the type of thing you don't turn down. So my notes on it, like, you know, I was taking a look at video on him this morning just to, you know, just in prep for all this. And the, the swing is so pretty. Like, if you look at the video of him, the swing out of that left side just looks so gorgeous. And there's not much you can really nitpick about the swing. The, really, the only questions are, of course, you know, moving down the um, moving down the defensive ladder, which to me isn't as big of a deal. It's, it's a little knock, but you know, when you're getting at the, you know, the one, one level, it might be enough to move you down. The only question is there's not a ton of physical projection left for him. Like you look at him and it seems like a fully mature body and you know, good, which has advantages. Like, you know, you get to see where the guy is going to seemingly be, you know, a lot of power in the legs. And I mean, that's where his power is coming from. I mean, he's five, eight, you don't expect that type of power out of a five eight guy so um you know again the strength in the legs is where he's really getting it 
So as I said, the lack of physical projection can be a bit of a worry. He does have short levers, you know, just because of, again, 5'8", short levers on the swing, which, you know, it allows him to get to the inside ball a little bit. But if they're going to pitch him away, it's going to be a little bit harder to work with. And again, quality pitching at the pro level, especially the further you go up, they're going to exploit every weakness you have. So those are the only real questions. And again, they're nitpicky sort of questions. And again, at 1-1, it's just such a hard thing to do, especially with high schools where you're talking projection. And in terms of where they could wind out in terms of physical projection and all the like, uh, Drew Jones has a little bit more to go. He's already you know, hitting the ball. like He doesn't have the sweetest swing. He doesn't have Termar Johnson's swing, but there is a little bit more physical projection. I mean, he's 6'4", 180, and already has lots of solid power in the bat with more possibly to come. So again, it's that balance of the here and now safety that kind of uh, Termar Johnson provides and the possible upside that Drew Jones has, along with, again, just the incredible defensive ability plus a 70 great arm in city center field is something else. So well, no offense to Cedric Mullins, but he don't, he doesn't have a 70 great arm out there. Looking at another center fielder, um, Eliza green, um, you know, that seems like there are definite holes in his swing questions about whether he's going to have big swing and miss tendencies, but um, does his electric bat have give him a chance to be a contender for the first pick this year? He would have to show some stuff this spring. Like, you know, he is, in a sense, what Drew Jones could be physically, you know, in two or three years. He is what you would love to see Drew Jones physically mature into. And he has that power that, you know, every year there's that high school bat that has the swing and miss concerns, but has just absolute light tower warehouse power. Last year, I mean, we're talking Brady House. Um, This year, it's Elijah Green. So he's going to have to show some stuff this spring, especially um, any any the uh, sort of travel opportunities that his team might have. A lot of the worry was on the showcase circuit. There was a little bit of um, struggle with velocity. And again, like who knows how the game's going to be by the time he gets to the majors in you know three or four years. Maybe the game has changed, but you know, so much of the game these days is that high velocity up in the zone sort of stuff. And if you can't handle it in high school, you're going to have to make a lot of adjustments in pro ball. But again, if he shows the ability, if he shows the, um, if he shows the ability to catch up to those pitches, I mean, when he make con- when he makes contact, it is a special sound. It is a sound that you don't hear every year. And that power that he has in that bat, assuming he can, assuming he can make enough contact. Yeah. He could absolutely be in the one, one category, but he's got to show something. He's got to, he's got a little bit more work to do than shall we say Termar or Drew Jones in that way. So speaking of Jones, you've touched on him a little bit already, but I feel like a lot of the attention is on Tamar Johnson because that hit tool and Elijah green, because he's been the one, one favorite for so long now, but can you go a little deeper into Drew Jones's just overall game and why he's right up there as a potential pick for the Orioles. You mentioned in your article that between Tamar and Jones, you know, this is going to be a debate all year. Right now, you're leaning a little bit towards Jones. I love the bloodlines. Andrew Jones, one of my all-time favorite players. So that kind of skews my viewpoint a little bit here. But um, what makes him such a special talent and worth a look at 1-1? Yeah, I, I'm with you on uh, on on his dad. You know, I, I saw Andrew Jones when he was uh, in Richmond, you know, right after his uh, minor league player of the year and then followed up with a second minor league player. I was very fortunate to see him 
early in my uh, baseball watching career. I guess I was like seven or eight at that point. He went to Richmond. But no, Drew Jones brings his dad's uh, defense in center field. I mean, again, we're talking the type of guy that could be one of the best center fielders in the game, if not the best in the game. And, you know, you know, the Orioles have a guy like that right now in Cedric Mullins, but then combine that with the arm, with a 70 sort of great arm, the type of arm that you see, you know, maybe not, you know, Ichiro is historically great arm. Roberto Clemente is historically great arm. Maybe it's not that impressive, but it's once, it's just one tick down from it and much better than many of the arms that we see in center field this day. So you combine that with, you know, run times that are towards the plus or even, you know, ticking into the plus plus sort of category. And the fact that he can generate so much pop already with, again, a 6'4", 180 frame. I mean, Elijah Green, special power is 6'3", 215, 220. Jones can add 30 pounds of muscle and all of a sudden tick into possibly that 60, 65 power at the probably, well, third most important position on the diamond. You know, give catchers their due. Although, well, who knows what value is going to be going to catchers if they go to the automated strike zone. But still, the, we'll say the third most important position on the field, bringing power, bringing defense, and bringing speed. The only question, again, he doesn't have the smoothest swing, but he has always made contact. Right now, the other, the other question mark is, if you look at his swing, he seems to kind of step towards third base a little bit. His head, his upper body and legs are a little disconnected from each other. If he can really tap into that sort of connectedness, like Baseball America, they were looking at the, uh, the, the things that the first rounders ultimately have to do leading into the draft to really improve their uh, station or maintain in Jones's case. And the two things they commented on, adding strength and staying synced up with the upper and lower halves. If Jones does that, Again, you know, he and Termar Johnson are going to be battling it out, but the potential that Jones brings with that elite center field glove, with that power, and with the speed that he absolutely has, um, is that that's why it's just a tick above. I'm I'm willing to take a little bit more risk. I will admit, with high school position players, and if I'm going to bet on the two, I will usually try to bet a little bit more on that upside. And just to throw one more thing on Drew Jones in there. There's some reports that he has the ability to play shortstop. So there's some reports that he might be tried out at shortstop. I wouldn't do it again. Potential to be one of the best center fielders in baseball, but um, it's still a uh, it's still an interesting little aspect that gets added. Maybe we're looking at a Trey Turner ish sort of situation there. So question here from a listener of Vivek: Is Drew Jones the best of the potential five tool players in the entire draft? I would say so. I would say so. He's I don't think he's the only one who has five tool potential. I mean, his weakest tool out of the five is probably the hit tool, which is always the scariest. <laughs> that said, I think he has the highest chance to be a true five tool player. Termar Johnson isn't going to be able to really get that speed sort of thing, which, you know, as the five tools go, I tend to put at the lowest. Uh, Brooks Lee needs to tap into a bit more power. Jace Young isn't going to be the defense. Like he'll be, decent enough defensively, but he's not a defender. And Elijah Green has, I think, more hit tool questions than Drew Jones. Um, but I would put Drew Jones as the highest probability to become a true, complete five-tool player out of them. Maybe not the loudest tools. Um, you know, there, I don't think Drew Jones is ever going to access Elijah Green's power. Few players do. But I think he has the highest chance to truly be called a five-tool player. Nice. I think you touched on this earlier, uh, but 
if you're, let's say you're zeroing on Tamar Johnson and Andrew Jones a couple weeks ahead of the draft, um, does the fact that Johnson probably does likely project as a second baseman and let's say Drew Jones does project more as that center fielder, is that enough to knock Johnson below Jones and enough for you to say, yeah, it, it's definite Jones here with that pick? Or is it just something maybe to think about a little bit extra? At that point, I think it's gonna. it would come down to who takes less money. Like, really, at that point, I would put them as so close, so even. So, like, in my draft model, I have Tamar Johnson about mm, seven runs ahead of, it, uh, ahead of Jones. But the one thing that my model does not account for in any way, shape, or form is defense. And Termar Johnson has the ability to, you know, play decent defense at second base and um, even possibly get to, I, looking at his motions, I would, you know, peg it at like a 57 and a half sort of grade, maybe a 60 um, as he, you know, if he gets uh, some good work with a infield coordinator, that type of guy. Drew Jones could add, again, a win or maybe even more with his defense potentially every single year. So I, that's why I pretty much have them on level. So really at that point when it's just so close, when it's that 1A, 1B, at that point you start maximizing around the remainder of the draft and seeing, okay, who can you cut more of a deal with? And, you know, at that point start looking to the 30s. Yeah, for sure. And as early as the day after the last draft ended, it seemed like Jace Young – and Brooksley were like, okay, here's where the Orioles will be looking. College polished um, hitters with up the middle, you know, position. But they both seem likely to be second, third base types with plus hit tools, a little bit of power, not too much. I mean, Lee doesn't have Young's plate discipline, but he doesn't strike out that much either. Who do you prefer between the two? I probably have a preference for Young. Um they both have excellent hit tools. They both have a solid sort of, uh, you know, feel to hit. Um, the model hates Brooks Lee. I mean, just honestly, the, uh, how should we say, uh, he doesn't take nearly enough walks. Like, I mean, now granted, the Orioles don't seem to particularly care about that particularly cleat statistic um, or strikeouts for that matter. They seem to focus much more on that power and hit tool combo uh, separate of walk strike, separate of that kind of plate discipline question. It's so tough really to pick between the two of them, but I think I have a preference for Young because just frankly, he has shown some ability to take walks. I think he has a bit more power that he is going to be able to access both in game and both raw. And Brooksley is a shortstop, but I think really a shortstop in name only which means he could play second or third. Um, neither, neither of them are defensively standout enough to really make a difference there. So I think the slight edge in Jung's uh, power and the track record, not only of taking walks a little bit more, but also performing, I mean, you know, this has to be part of it, in a major conference is going to come to play there. Um, that said, I mean, there are a few other college bats that, you know, kind of fit that Orioles profile of performer in a major conference. Um, Jacob Berry, formerly at um, formerly at uh, Arizona, now at LSU. You know, the SEC is the most powerful conference, probably in the uh, or at least consistently in the country. You face the most uh, high quality uh, pro pitching, essentially, that you can get at the college level there, at least consistently. Now, granted, he's pretty much confined to a corner and more likely first base, but still. 
it's the type of thing that if he can show up and perform there, he could turn a few heads possibly. But still, of the college bats, I would still lean young overly and then a small gap to uh, Barry and to Lauder. See, Ben McDonald this morning responded to our tweet uh, about watching college baseball and said his his pick is, uh, I'll give you one guess who it's going to be. It's, it's Jacob Barry. <laughs> oh, I mean, hey, got got to back the alma mater. <laughs> This feels like it's a weird year for pitching in the draft because the college pitchers are towards the top of the class, have injury concerns. Um, but then you do have the high school prep arms like Dylan Wesco, who are drawing a lot of attention coming into the spring. Now, obviously, there's sort of this notion surrounding Michael Ice and the Orioles that they don't like pitchers for at least the first five or six rounds. But is there any possibility you think that Wesco – works his way into that one, one conversation. I, I doubt it. Um, and I think this would be the case for pretty much any team, even separate of the Orioles. There is just historically so many questions about high school pitchers that taking one at one, one, assuming they don't cut some sort of a deal or something like that just feels like such a risky proposition unless, unless they're just an overwhelmingly dominant arm. And, Lesko is good. Um, he's a bit on the older side, which you know you can argue how much age should really come into play. I mean, eighteen nine doesn't seem like old, but it's it's old for a high school uh, player. And yeah, I mean, Lesko has the stuff. I mean, fastball in the upper nineties, nice changeup, but just just the risk that comes with high school players. I mean, I'm I'm fine with high school pitchers, but definitely not in the top ten. It just it. It, it rubs me the wrong way and uh, just gives me an itchy feeling that I don't like. So look at the Orioles pick and kind of the system as a whole. We know the Orioles love their college hitters uh, with the hope of this year being the last that the Orioles have that one, one pick, or at least this pick at the very top of the draft. Hopefully we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll talk about more about the draft the lottery and stuff later on, but do you think that this is the year that the Orioles maybe decide to, and I know you, know, you have money concerns and a lot of other issues here and it's only February, but do you think this is a good opportunity for the Orioles to go ahead and, and try to hit that home run with one of these high school picks uh, this time? And I know John Mioli actually had a pretty good piece talked about it a little bit this morning, talking about Kobe Mayo as well, referencing the fact that, you know, this farm system is a little deeper now this year. So maybe this could be the year where you, you swing for the fences a little more. Um, uh, what are your, what are your thoughts about that whole strategy this year? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question on that end of things. Just because, um, as you said, there is more depth. You don't have to worry quite as much about building the you know broad base. And as much as, as great as a broad base is, you know, the broader base of you know high floor sort of guys in a sense. And not all of them are high floor. Some there are some uh, with a wider range of possible outcomes. But um, the challenge with uh, the the uh, well, okay, let's be honest here. You look at the uh, system and beyond the top four guys, everyone comes with questions, especially the arms. And you're essentially taking the not fully lottery ticket approach, maybe the uh, slightly higher probability lottery ticket approaches, because, I mean, coming in, there was nothing here. There was nothing in that system and you needed some guys to come through there for the, for the uh, team to even have any shot. But now we're at least getting some guys in the system that actually do have that chance to succeed. And so, yeah, maybe this is that time for the high school. And high schoolers are always so weird. So I, one of my favorite um, experiences 
with the Rays sitting in the draft room. So, you know, 2017, number four comes up, we draft Brendan McKay. Now we took a look back and, you know, we had Brendan McKay at the top of our draft um, as one of the best hitters and one of the best pitchers. Like he was tearing it up that year. Absolutely. And he looked great. Now we went back and looked at his high school reports and it, it was funny to see just kind of like, eh, he's a middling sort of, you know, maybe fifth, sixth round sort of high schooler at that point. And all of a sudden he's at the top of our boards. And one of the things that we jokingly said was, you know, this is what high schoolers become. We wanted to call the area scout and be like, this is what they become. And you look at a player who started at that and became this. So again, you look at then these high schoolers at the top of the draft, the Tarmar Johnsons, who are starting from already such a, um, higher place than a Brendan McKay coming out of high school. And now granted he dominated Western Pennsylvania. Um, One of my cousin's uh, husbands is a high school coach there. He was very glad to see Brendan McKay graduate high school. He was very glad to see him gone, but he wasn't that first round type of talent then. And you look at Drew Jones and Termar Johnson, they are truly first round and top of the first round type of guys. And you dream about what they could become the, just the perennial all-star that you don't have to wonder about. And maybe this is that year. And I honestly hope that it is this year. Like as, as say, as much as I recognize the college guys are that safer sort of pick because of the data that exists on them. I really hope that they feel comfortable enough that if they see something they like out of one of those two high schoolers, that they're willing to take that shot without the worry that, well, we're just going to, yeah, it might not work out, but you know, they won't feel like it's, there's the cupboard so bare that they, um, can't waste a pick in a sense. Stephen, that kind of goes back to a point we hear a lot from the national, you know, baseball media talking about the Orioles, which is that Michael Elias has gone after this wide base, try to get a wide base of talent. So you do things like trade Dylan Bundy for four pitchers with the hopes that one or two stick out. Do you think that now that they have sort of built the depth of the system up a little bit, that it's time to flip the switch on that maybe as a whole and acquisition and not just a draft? I think, I I think so. I think we start seeing that switch about a year from now. I think this is the last year of the acquisition mode, essentially. And then starting, you know, maybe with the winter meetings this year, maybe with things next year. At this point, you know, you stop the acquisition. You honestly, you start the filtering. You filter out the guys that you honestly think can make a contribution to the next Orioles playoff team. And the guys that, Maybe they can't be a full contributor, but they can be a useful piece for someone else. That's when you start packaging them for, you know, it doesn't have to be the star player. I mean, the Astros went out and, you know, who are always, there's always going to be the Orioles Astros comparisons as to a certain extent, tired of them I'm hearing at this point, but there's always going to be those comparisons. The Astros went out and got, you know, your Evan Gaddis type of guy, you know, not a world beater, not a guy that's going to ultimately make the difference, but a step up from, you know, a actual major leaguer, which again, you know, they didn't, they didn't necessarily give up any world beaters of prospects for them or anything like that. They gave up the guys that they didn't think could ultimately be on that playoff team, but could be useful to someone else. And so hopefully this year is about identifying essentially that filter and then start sending out the guys and bringing in the, you know, again, doesn't have to be the, it doesn't have to be the Francisco Lindor trade or the, you know, Nolan Arenado trade or something like that. It can be something smaller, but hopefully it's a move towards that. Yeah, good point. And just speaking to the unpredictability of pitchers in general, 
a guy who seemed like a slam dunk top three pick last year gets picked by the Mets, what, 11 and doesn't sign. Uh, can Kumar Rocker carve out enough interest without playing organized baseball this year to do better than he would have last year? Oh, I mean, he'll probably go to the independent leagues or do something along that uh, those lines. I mean, there is historical precedent for this. Um, I mean, Aaron Crow had basically the same situation happen in 2008, I think. I can't remember if it was 2008 or 2009. I think he was drafted in 09. And he went, uh, when did he, 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 he went as a top 10 pick both times. Let's see, uh, drafted 12th overall, or no, 9th overall in 2008, 12th overall in 2009. So that's a pretty good rocker sort of comparison, a high talent, highly rated sort of guy that drafted um, as a junior, didn't sign, went out into indie ball and came back again. So yeah, Kumar Rocker absolutely could generate that interest. But the big question that no one knows is, what did the Mets see in that physical? Like, that's the big one. And there's going to be that sort of question there. If, because um, I mean, again, Kumar Rocker's going to go pitch an independent ball. He's still, assuming there's no injury in that shoulder, he's still going to have that fastball. He's still going to have that wipeout slider. He's still going to have probably the questions about the changeup or about that third pitch. But the biggest question of them all is going to be what's going on in the MRI, what's going to be going on in that shoulder. And if he can prove that it's healthy and that, that weird fastball dip around, you know, April, May was um, just a complete fluke. He'll get interest. He will absolutely get interest. And there's probably, again, assuming he's healthy, there would be some team that would give him a shot in the top 10. He had that sort of, uh, he has that sort of stuff. He absolutely has top 10 stuff, especially again, in a year when college pitching is um, a little weaker, I guess you could say, or definitely I mean, what, the top-ranked pitcher this year right now in Baseball America is Blade Tidwell out of uh, Tennessee, who's 12th ranked. Uh, So could Kumar Rocker go up higher than him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I absolutely think he could go as a top-10 guy if he was able to prove that he was healthy. So if you're following Rocker throughout the spring, because obviously, as you said, we don't know what the Mets saw in those physicals that scared them off of the deal. Are you going to be looking at his velocity largely to figure out what is going on, or is there going to be more to it than that? I mean, velocity is a great starting point. Um, if the teams are doing their due diligence, which they absolutely will be, um, you know, around draft time or maybe even sooner if they want, um, they'll have Rocker in as soon as they possibly can to throw off the mound in front of the uh, in front of the uh, um, the radars, in front of the stat cast, all that, and get all the information they can, you know, have them throw a bullpen in front of it and throw a dozen sliders and see if the slider still has the same metrics as in college. See if the fastball has the same, you know, still has the same movement, the same velocity as that. And I mean, again, he could do a lot of good for himself if he was able to basically throw, you know, here's the x-ray, here's the MRI. It is good. Look it over all you want. But um, he probably won't do that because he's not compelled to. Um, And it's going to possibly bring some questions in for him. So again, velocity is a good place to look, but you know, any team that's doing their due diligence will get him in front of the radars and, and the uh, stat cast and just get all the info they can on him. So this is the Orioles and we probably have to talk a little bit of college outfielders at least. And that brings us to Chase DeLauder, who probably is the top college outfielder in this year's draft. You wrote about him in your recent piece on BSL. There's a lot to like here, though. You project him as a corner outfielder. Right now he's playing center field at JMU. 
kind of give us your general thoughts on him and what the chances are that DeWalder maybe surprises us in six in center field, or do you definitely see him as a corner guy? I mean, not definitely. Um, I mean, it's so weird looking at him. I mean, again, he's he's a big guy. He's, what, 6'4", 235 sort of thing, and he posts allegedly double plus. I haven't seen the video on it, but posts double plus times in the sprint. And so double plus times in the sprint can cover a lot of ground in center field, needless to say. So, yeah, he could stick in center field. It's just there there are going to be you look at the frame and there's going to be questions. He doesn't necessarily have a center fielder's frame, just like, um, you know, Elijah Green, people project him to eventually wind out in a corner, even though he starts in center field, uh, because, you know, you figure, well, with Elijah Green, he's going to grow a bit more, you know, add a few more pounds, all that. So um, there's go- there's just going to be questions from what they look at him. And um, I guess the other thing is, I have never, I have not had the opportunity to see Chase DeLauder play. I mean, I'm down the road from him, and I fully intend when he plays uh, Virginia Tech. So there, I circled three key series for uh, DeLauder this weekend versus Florida State. Um, he's got two games, got a two game midweek set against Tennessee in March, and then two games, one in Harrisonburg, one in Blacksburg against Virginia Tech. And I fully intend on being at the Virginia Tech game because that's the only, uh, that's the, that's his only home game against, uh, you know, Power five or power, you know, major conference competition, even if Virginia Tech isn't the most incredible of teams, it's still an ACC team. And so one of the things I want to see is how does he read the ball off the bat? How is his movement out in there in center field? Because if he can stick in center field, all of a sudden that is a huge sort of thing and honestly could rocket him above. It, you know, if you truly believe he's a center fielder and if he continues to perform, honestly, that kind of can move him up above Jace Young or Brooks Lee. It's just the question of, because I mean, Minute you move into the corner, you're you're going to lose some value there. And at the top of the draft, you you got to be cognizant of that. But it's just it's really interesting to see him performing at this level, and just wondering because I mean, there's always the small conference guy, Nick Gonzalez, a couple years ago, um, Cowser last year. There's always going to be those small conference questions. But I mean, right now. He, I say, you look at the video, he has a nice swing. He put up numbers in the CAA and then he put up numbers on the Cape. And those numbers in the Cape were so, so important for him because one would bat and two against the best competition he's going to have seen at that point. It allows teams to really believe in him at that point. So he has to go out and dominate the CAA again this year. But if it looks like he really can stick in center, he absolutely could be the top college guy off the board. And I, I personally find it harder to take him over Tamar Johnson or Drew Jones, but if the Orioles want to focus in on a college bat, he might be the one to look at. Do it, Michael Elias. That's <laughs> I, I'm glad I can, as a, a two-time graduate of JMU and someone who has a lot of very close connections to this baseball program, the coaching staff and some of those players, I can't separate myself from that. So I, <laughs> it's good to hear uh, your thoughts on him. And if you come down for that uh, Virginia Tech game, that's pushing it close to baby number two due date. But uh, uh, <laughs> I will, I'm definitely excited to watch Chase DeLauder, Gavin Cross uh, go up against oh, yes. each other there. But do you, my only question with DeLauder though is, is there – there's obviously the small school concern already. You know, the Elon Northeastern matchups, Delaware matchups aren't super great, but you know, I feel like I've watched a lot of, and I live literally two minutes from the baseball stadium. Um, and I feel like I've seen chase a more in the Rockingham County baseball league, uh, summer <laughs> baseball league up here that some nights he's facing 17 year old kids in high school. Some nights he's facing 33 year old gym teachers. Um, 
he raked, of course, but I feel like he's played I more games so. in that league than um, than he has in, in college because 2020 COVID, 2021 just JMU's baseball season was a disaster because of COVID again. Does that add more concern for you, or is that Kate performance good enough to propel him up there? It's going to add questions. I mean, I, I just pulled up in my database here. So let's see, his, uh, his freshman year, 77 plate appearances last year, which technically also is listed as, as his freshman year, 127 plate appearances. So yes, um, there's a bit of question there and a bit of worry due to that. But honestly, so one of the things I do with my model, just to make sure to account for these small sample size sort of things, besides adjusting for opponents and adjusting for home park and all that sort of stuff, I still regress the statistics based on, you know, regression to the mean, all that sort of thing to try to account for that as much as possible. And his performance still stands up. He still has, you know, adjusted ISOs at the top of the draft. He still has solid, solid adjusted walks and doesn't strike out. Um, you know, as I say, he strikes out about what you'd expect for his performance and who he's playing and all of that sort of questions. So the performance, even though it's against small conference, is incredible enough that even the small sample size, there is some signal there. And then when you combine that with the fact that he did just go to the Cape and take care of business, which again, he absolutely had to do. I mean, in, let's see, what did he put up in the Cape last year? Here it is, a uh, 298, 397, 589 slash, not, slash line, nine home runs, more walks than strikeouts, 2118. If he had gone up there and batted 250 with a 150 ISO and two home runs, he would be, they might get him at the tail end of the top hundred. Maybe, maybe. But he went out there and faced SEC arms, faced, uh, you know, faced SEC, ACC, Big Ten arms and put up numbers. And at that point, and put up numbers with a wood bat. At that point, you can really only argue so much. You can only claim that there is no signal in that, uh, in that small conference performance at that point. He pitches as well by Goliath. So it, <laughs> finding finding video on guys at the, especially college guys, for whatever reason, finding video on college guys is tough. I could not find um video on YouTube for uh, Jace Young. One of the few videos for Chase Lauder out there is a uh JMU pitching performance, which was um which was amusing to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll leave it at that. Um I mean, one more question up here about the draft. Um, you know, you're doing early research up there, but uh, anybody, any sleepers you see could rise into consideration at one, one that we haven't talked about, or uh, maybe even looking early second round, or are there some very early names you could throw out and give Orioles fans? Let's see at one, one, I think we're going to see who we see. Um, like we know the names it would, it would have to be an absolutely like, you know, Brock Jones is a nice player. Um, but he would have to absolutely tear it up to jump up that much. Gavin Cross, nice player, but again, he would have to go just so much above and beyond where we expect to see him at this point for him to even get close to 1-1. So I think we pretty much covered the 1-1 real possibilities there. Um, let's see, sleepers at like number, I'd say in the kind of second half, there are there are a few interesting guys that I kind of like in the... Uh, in that sort of range. Um, let's see. Mostly, so it's difficult to put these names out there because I don't think they would actually go for them because they're pitchers. There are a lot of guys that I like pitchers-wise. Like, you know, I like Hunter Barco. I like 
Um, even with the Tommy John surgery, I liked some of the stuff I was seeing out of Peyton Payette or Pallet. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name out of Arkansas. And I mean, if that Tommy John surgery hadn't happened in March 2020, Connor Prelip, there, there, you know, forget the discussions about uh, Drew Jones and uh, Termar Johnson. Connor Prelip probably would have been rolling at number one. Just the performance that Prelip was putting up in those first couple of years that he was there, it, the motion looked nice. You know, touching fastball, touching in the uh, mid, like around 97, generating 50% whiffs on his slider and has a decent changeup. Like, again, 15 strikeouts per nine and two walks per nine, sort of thing, over a couple of years and a career 0.96 ERA. Like, at that point, there would have been, it, it, he would have gone into the year at 1 1, basically projected. But Tommy John is a thing. That said, I still like him. I would still be willing to take that sort of risk because. Again, the stuff, assuming the stuff's there, like we got to see something. And I mean, he got TJ in what, uh, March of 2020. So there's a chance that he gets a little bit of work later in the college season, or maybe in some of the uh, kind of like draft league, um, summer league sort of situations with the draft pushback. Um, I like Jonathan Cannon last year out of uh, Georgia. I still like him. Um, let's see. Hmm. Mickey, uh, not Mickey, Mikey Romero. Uh, so as uh, the year goes, he's a, Mike Elias likes uh, high school shortstop types of guy. He likes getting those middle infielders. And Mikey Romero, kind of a, on the thin side, you know, 5'11, 168. But um, he has a nice smooth stroke out of the left handed side. And assuming that he's able to, you know, grow into his body a bit more, add a little bit of power, nice uh, defensive actions, good arm. Um, He's the type of guy that could rise up into he, right now. He's uh, 39 on Baseball America. I have him eh, about number 30 on my on my uh, model. But he's the type of guy that, with a uh, nice spring, a little added strength, could move up boards. Um, and you know, could interest as a uh, as a um, I don't want to say overslot, but a slightly overslot. If they saved, you know, like if they got a three hundred thousand dollar discount, they could push an extra three hundred thousand to him and maybe uh, get a really interesting player. So before we transition out of high school, college baseball talk, and in the MLB draft lottery talk, we thought we would uh, give a little bit of a viewing guide here for this weekend in college baseball because we can actually talk about baseball games that are going to be played on schedule that aren't tied up by the lockout. So we uh, each came up with a series that we'll be following. And I'll start with Nick um, because this is a series we've already talked about on this show. Do I have to say it? I mean, I'm watching JMU Florida State. I've got the popcorn ready. Um, ACC Network. I got YouTube TV now, so I can watch ACC Network finally. Um, yeah, Park Florida State, I think just before we came on the air, released their rotation. They're throwing three lefties, including Parker Messick and Bryce Hubbard, who I think Baseball America has both like top 50, I think overall, top 75 at least. So, 56, 57. Um, perfect. Um, so Chase DeLauder, first shot, three lefties at Florida State, top 11 12 program in the country preseason ranking so uh, i'm excited to see what he can do see if he can come out of the gate strong for me um i've just never watched a ton of college baseball so i'm listening to you guys all right let's see i don't even honestly know how to watch college baseball i have espn plus i've got direct tv stream i'm just going to flip channels and see if i can find it uh anything on there if if i have the acc network i'll definitely check out chase delauder but bare minimum, I'm going to be on Twitter and hopefully watching some highlights and clips here and there just from following guys on there. And, 
yeah, I can't wait. I got to do it. If, if I'm going to watch college baseball, this is the year. There's nothing else to watch. I'm going to be checking out um, Stanford and Cal State Fullerton this weekend. In part because I have this weird thing that when in doubt, I just turn on a West Coast game. I don't know why I do that in the major league season. But uh, I am interested in Brock Jones. I agree with Steven that it's going to take a lot for him to rise that 1-1 spot. But at the same time, this feels like a player who, for various reasons, because he did play a little bit of football in college, you did have you know, two years affected by the pandemic. Seems like he's got an interesting raw skill set, could put together a nice year. So I want to see you know, what he does, start learning a little bit more about him as we get started with the college season. Shall I give one? Because I, I have a couple things here on this one. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Sure. I say, Nick, incidentally, I will be watching Chase DeLauder because, I mean, Parker Messick, Bryce Hubbard, incidentally, also really like Hubbard. Type of thing, performance over uh, over raw stuff, but, um, you know, low 90s fastball and uh, swing and miss changeup and uh, curveball and uh, 13 strikeouts per nine. I'll take that. And uh, even better for uh, DeLauder, they, um, they both were in the Cape League, so I assume – uh, assuming they weren't on the same team, it doesn't say uh, where they uh, where they were playing. He at least has some some familiarity there. But um, besides that obvious one, um, I'm looking at the uh, state form State Farm College Baseball Showdown down in Texas, which you know one of those preseason tournament sort of thing. Well, not exactly a tournament, but a preseason showcase where you got Oklahoma, you got Auburn, number thirteen Arizona, Kansas State, Michigan, and Jace Young and number twenty three Texas Tech. So um, that's some pretty solid competition. It's um, you know, there, there's honestly no weak link there. Like a lot of times in these preseason showcases, you have a couple of power teams, maybe one upper level mid-major and then one pretty rough team there. No, that's uh that's all power conference, all pretty solid stuff. And a lot of names to kind of look on there. Other one to keep an eye on. Uh, I think this might be the only matchup of ranked teams uh, for a full series this weekend, uh, Oklahoma state and Vanderbilt. Um, not a huge year for Vanderbilt in terms of like uh top you know they don't have anyone in the top 10 of the draft but they still have a couple of other interesting guys uh, uh they well, i mean they always do carter young as their shortstop you know maybe a late first round type of guy depending on his performance this year so there's some stuff to check out over the weekend as we wait for uh, more baseball this spring and speaking of the potential delays we'll now turn to some how the draft has gotten mixed up in the collective bargaining agreement negotiations which is the prospect of a draft lottery Based on comments from Rob Manfred last week, it seems like we are going to have a draft lottery as part of the next CBA, but we still really don't know a lot of the details. We do know the players union was seeking to have a lottery that would involve the top eight picks. The owners had that at the top three. So maybe we split the difference, but we'll see. Um, So Stephen, I just wanted to start with this because you have worked on the inside of a draft with the Rays. Do you think that a draft lottery would be in any way effective at getting rid of the problem or the perceived problem, depending on how you look at it, of tanking? Or is it just something that's not going to really solve anything on its own? On its own, absolutely. It does not solve anything. There are too many other issues kind of tied up in there with the questions of, I mean, revenue sharing comes into all of that. The competitive balance tax comes into that. free agent uh, draft pick compensation compensation comes into that the changing the top of the draft alone even if you say teams can't pick in the top five or the top three for more than a couple years in a row even if you have a lottery sort of system does it help probably because i mean all the models all the things show that 
there's a huge drop off after, after the top couple of picks in terms of expected uh, results for players. Even when you account for, you know, your Mike Trout's getting picked at 25 and the like. After those first couple of picks, it's a pretty steep slope. So yeah, it can affect things. And it's going to have a cascading effect of how, I mean, I would assume only the top eight picks are affected beyond that. In the second round, it would revert back to uh, record order, I would assume. But then at that point, you know, if you're the worst team in baseball and you wind out with the number one, number six top, uh, number six pick in the first round, your bonus pool is affected. And so that gives you a little less flexibility to kind of work with the oversliding, undersliding that you might have had at a, uh, having number one and number 31 say, you lose a little bit of ability there. So um, yes, it I say it's gonna help things. It's gonna help decrease the, uh, you know, the tanking sort of concerns, hopefully increase some of the competitive uh, balance side of things, but it's not a fix all on its own. So much else has to go into it. Probably more has to go on the, uh, the revenue sharing side than um, I think people realize, but uh, well, actually, I wouldn't say that. There's been a lot of good coverage on that revenue sharing side of things and how that really affects things. So uh, people might be uh, better educated than I might be giving them credit for. But if they think, let's say, if uh, listeners or readers think that the draft lottery will fix it, you're dreaming. You're you're completely dreaming. Yeah, I feel like can there be a way where teams are forced to take the revenue, the money they get from the revenue sharing, and put it back into the team? to the product on the field. I don't know how that's, you know, exactly possible, I mean, but <laughs> ideally that's what it was supposed to be. But, um, yeah. uh, yeah. And maybe if you expand the playoffs to 12, let's not do 14, but if you expand it to 12, maybe, you know, that gives teams, a, a more of a, a willingness to try to get in and then anything can happen at that point. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be just a lottery alone. That's going to fix it, but it can't hurt. No, not as I it's, it's it would help like it really would just maybe not a ton. I, I got no thoughts. I don't know. I was interested to hear what Steven had to say there because yeah, I think about it. You know, I look at I think I mentioned last week somebody asked us that. And, you know, I just think that, yeah, yeah. OK, so I can't get a, a top eight pick. Like if you're going to tank, I just feel like teams are still going to do that. Um you know, there are going to be other ways around this. Teams are going to find new loopholes to figure out ways. It may, it may not be as extreme as what we've seen Baltimore do over the last couple of years, uh, but, you know, teams are still going to exploit any rule they can, obviously. But I'm interested to see uh, what happens. I think the biggest question a lot of Orioles fans have, I know a lot of people ask us, uh, they say, is it going to affect this year's draft? Um, is, is there any potential for that, or, or is that safe as we know? I would tend to expect it's safe, but you can't say that conclusively. Um, just under the, it would feel kind of odd because I'm sure teams would have acted differently last August, September, um, depending on what agreement maybe would have been developed. Because I mean, one of the other things, there are many different ways to do a draft lottery. Do you, uh, if, if you have a, let's say a five team lottery, do you have a flat 20% chance to get the number one pick and you go from there? Or does the worst team get a bit of a record, a little bit of a advantage? Me, I, I've always loved the gold system, which I don't know if y'all, y'all familiar with the gold system of uh, assigning draft order? Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, well, you might know it under another name, but the idea is that the minute the team is eliminated, they start accruing wins and the team with the most wins from when they're eliminated gets the number one pick so that the absolutely god awful teams still get the most number of opportunities to accrue wins um 
but it incentivizes a bit of winning. Now, I'm pretty sure there's no way it would ever happen, but I still like it. I still like it, at least conceptually as an idea. Yeah, I do like that idea. That's interesting. I'll take it. Best case scenario, doesn't affect this year. Orioles get 1-1 or keep 1-1 as we expect. Then they expanded to a lottery of eight. We get 70-ish wins in 2022, eighth worst record in baseball. Oh, well, you know, Orioles get 1-1 again in 2023. I say with, with how the uh, national media has uh, covered the Orioles' um, strategic decisions in the last few years, there might be just an absolute outcry if that happens. <laughs> I can only imagine the tweet storms coming from cer- certain national writers if that does happen. Buster Olney, where are you at? <laughs> I'll bring up this, Stephen, which is just conceptually, do you prefer, I mean, you just mentioned the golden rule is kind of your preferred system, but if you had to take, say, an eight-team lottery over the current draft system, um, which would you choose? Choosing between the current system and the eight-team? Uh, hmm. I would take the current system and, but in a way, so I would take the current system, mess with the, uh, the allocation of pools a little bit, try to affect that a little bit, maybe essentially still reward, you know, the opportunity to select the first player, but maybe even out the uh, curve a little bit of the pools, because ultimately, um, you know, teams want to draft players that they will sign. And if they know that they can't necessarily sign a player for reasons of um, if they select them, this player is not going to sign and the player has a better deal kind of hanging out two picks later, um, then, and that would be absolutely something that would be affected by the bonus pools and the curve of that, just basically as a middle ground between the two of less incentivizing the... The number one pick is an incredibly powerful thing, but the money that comes with it, the bonus pools that come with having the number one pick, frankly, are more important. So if you can even that out a little bit, I think that would um, still allow you to have, you know, the worst team has the shot at the best talent, but not as overwhelming of a shot as they currently do. Now, that said, I would also be fine if, under the blow it up perspective, there's a part of me that just wants to say, all draftees are free agents. Here's your bonus pool. The worst team does still get the largest bonus pool, and you get to sign how you want. You know, basically, whoever basically turn it into a free market. To a certain extent, there's a part of me that would love to just see that blow it up and honestly get get some of those. Get hopefully, you know, it it probably wouldn't wind out like this just because, again, the talent curve being how it is. Um, but hopefully, get as many players paid as possible in that regard. Yes. That would definitely be the most fair and interesting experiment for sure. But how would you feel about like a hard slot system like Ben Badler had talked about if they institute an international draft or when, I guess I should say, because they don't want, you know, teams taking advantage of these kids like they definitely would. Um, You know, if you sign the first pick, you get this much. If you sign second, you get this much. And that's just what you get. Or I think I saw something about an there was uh negotiating maybe like you can't offer less than 75 percent of slot something like that would do you think that would be a, a good idea uh yes 
just now there might need to be some concessions on the player's side, just because a lot of times that the players that teams don't offer that is when they suddenly, well, the Kumar Rocker situation, they suddenly look at the MRI and they see something that is that they don't like, but to a certain extent, they should do their homework prior to the draft as well. So I absolutely think that, you know, players should, as a general rule, I am for the players getting paid. They are the product. Um, so that said, I wouldn't mind some protection for uh, players that get drafted there. I don't think I'd be in favor of the hard slotting system. Maybe it's a uh, hard slot plus minus, you know, some small percentage that is a set amount, you know, uh, slot plus or minus. Let's see. Number one slot is what? Uh, 7 million, 8 million around that range. So maybe slot plus minus 10%, give or take something like that to provide a little bit of wiggle room in that sort of way for, you know, for teams to allow for the, you know, I do enjoy um, uh, conceptually, let's say there are times when I don't like it, but I enjoy conceptually the idea of trying to build together and build together the best draft class based on, um, again, the thought process of underslotting, overslotting, all that sort of thing. But I think some guardrails on it wouldn't be the worst idea. What about, why can't we trade draft picks? Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> are, are, you, are you prepared? For, are, are you all prepared for the uh, outcry when Michael Elias trades the number one pick for number three <laughs> plus uh, a second rounder and a 2023 uh um, second rounder as well. Are y'all are y'all ready to have that discussion with everyone on the boards here? I love chaos and the negativity is abound anyway. Why not? Let's do it. <laughs> I'm ready for those. Fair enough, honestly. Trades. Yeah, on, honestly, I wouldn't mind it either. But that said, I I don't, <laughs> I don't want. All I do is I just run the model. I don't worry about everything from uh, besides that. Um, I, I leave that you all to deal with that side of it. Give me seven future first round draft picks for this year's first round draft pick, like they do in the NBA. Let's go. Let's get Adley Rutschman for yeah. That that said, we might have gotten a better deal for Manny Machado if they had allowed something like that. <laughs> That's fair. That is especially fair to bring up when we had a discussion back in December about whether or not they would have been letting Manny Machado would have been better off letting Manny Machado walk after the 2018 season for the draft picks wherever they would have fallen compared to what they got. Well, I mean, I, that, that that might be going now. Apparently, they're they're talking, and I think they've agreed both sides to eliminate draft compensation, um, or at least uh, draft penalties. I'm not sure if the compensation side is gone, but the penalties side seems to be uh, going out in some of the most recent reports that they uh, that both sides agree on. I mean, the players obviously want the penalties gone, but um, I think I think I saw somewhere that Manfred did agree to that uh, the penalty side will be gone. I hope they keep the compensation side. I hope the team at least nets, you know, a second rounder for a free agent that walks that they make a qualifying offer to or something like that. Baby yeah. steps. By I, July, we might have a deal. If we're lucky. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like it's a long way off. It does seem like those a draft there are some consensuses. We're going to have a lottery. It looks like a 20 round draft is the way of the future here with MLB. Perhaps. But we'll see, Stephen. I see you're not sure there. No, 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 not that I'm not sure. I just don't like it. <laughs> I mean, just just with the latest reports about MLB, you know, trying to negotiate down from 180 minor leaguers to 150, which basically means another uh, another rung of the development ladder cut, which at some point would probably mean a 15 round draft. I don't, I don't want to see that. I really would. Pref- I mean, heck, 
I mean, I personally loved digging through the 40th round or the 30th, 35th round guys and digging through that. But I'm, you know, I'm a bit obsessive, obsessive and a bit of a nut in that regard. Um, but I, I don't want to see a 15 round draft. There's, I mean, there's so much error bars. Like, you know, teams are good at their jobs as a general rule and they can identify talent. But there's always players that slip through and the error bars on evaluations, both strictly model evaluations as well as scouting evaluations. The error bars are such that cutting it down to only 150 players in the minors and a, I would think in all honesty, inevitable at that point, 15 round draft, even if it's the next CBA, um, it, it feels like there would be a surprising amount of talent lost more talent than I think people would expect by losing just round 16 through 20. Yeah. It's a whole nother ball, ball of yarn that uh, we could probably really spend a lot of time on, but yeah, I baseball is great because there are so many great stories of guys who just worked and worked and developed, you know, after not being, you know, Mike Piazza, 50th round draft pick, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I'd hate to see that part go away. But if they cut them, they're going to pay the minor leaguers more, guys. That's yeah. That's what we were told. Instead of eleven thousand a year, it would be thirteen thousand a year. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, what extra twenty percent? Yeah. Maybe that's that's the idea. They take the revenue sharing money that they get and pay the minor leaguers because usually the revenue sharing money is going to go to the teams that are, have more of those minor leaguers uh, in that kind of development pro- uh, prospect pipeline. Yeah, trickle down a little bit. Come on. Keep this conversation going another hour. We'll solve the entire CBA. That's right. There we there we go. Yeah. Well, so we'll just solve the whole season starting on time. I do it. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Hey, someone suggested we talk for five thousand hours straight today. So if I'll I'll talk for five thousand hours straight if we get the deal done by opening day. Yeah, I got to teach on Friday, so I don't think I can do that. I was going to pre-record like. 3,500 hours in half an hour. So, <laughs> oh, okay. There we go. Yeah. So, uh, just to wrap up here, Stephen, you've got a long way to go as a draft. We really enjoy your coverage, your work over as a site and on the warehouse. But, uh, what are you going to be looking for in the next few months and how's your model going to sort of evolve? So, so much of the model is really geared towards college performance because I mean, high schoolers, I just don't have access to the type of information that teams have to really work off of high schoolers. And I'm watching, you know, I'm going to watch the evaluations of the high schoolers that come in. I'm going to watch as much video on the high schoolers as that coming in. Because again, my draft model is just a tool in my decision-making process. I, I maintain a pref list that is, yes, heavily influenced by the draft model, but it isn't the be all end all. I mean, Draft model right now has Brooks Lee, I think, in the 20s. I wouldn't put him that low, but I do note its concerns, and I don't have Brooks Lee number three overall. I have him somewhere in the back half of the top 10 because of that, because of the concerns that are there. So I'll be watching the high schoolers, seeing if Drew Jones looks like he's added a little weight and is doing a better job connecting uh, connecting his swing altogether. I will let's say, Termar Johnson, I'm just making sure that you know nothing goes awry. I'm going to watch Elijah Green for the swing and miss. But I'm watching those college statistics very closely. I'm looking for improvement in Brooks Lee's walk rate. I'm looking for hopefully a little bit more power out of Jace Young. I'm looking for Chase Slaughter to absolutely tear it up. I would love to see a Connor Norby season where he hits 400 with 20 home runs, basically. that That's the type of performance that could get him into the maybe, as, and sticking in center field, into the 1-1 conversation. So 
I'm watching, there, there are a few guys that I'm watching specific stats for them real closely and I'm watching all the video I can and just continually updating. Just don't wait for, you know, don't settle into an opinion too soon. Just take all the data as I can and just continually update until, I don't think we actually have a date for the draft officially yet. Um, we'll say until July 13th. Keep on updating until then. And make sure we have coverage for all three days. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we do not want to get in trouble for that again. So, Bob, Nick, before we wrap up, any final thoughts? No, this was educational for me. I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah, it's great to talk about actual real baseball games. And we get to go off in 48 hours, less than 48 hours from now, and actually watch these guys that we talked about today live. So definitely go out. Uh, if you're close to college baseball game, go out and watch, support those kids. I mean, watch it on TV. Um, there's so many games on over this weekend. Uh, and yeah, enjoy baseball. It's finally here. Yep, exactly. And on that note, thank you for listening to tonight's episode of On the Birds. Thank you to Stephen Loftus for joining us tonight. Uh, we'll be back next week with Nathan Ruiz of the Baltimore Sun. We'll be back on our normal night of Monday. Uh, in the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest coverage there. Uh, be sure to also visit the message boards when in discussion with fellow readers of the site, as well as some writers there. And follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.